Now this scene is from a movie by the title of God's Not Dead 2. Some of you have probably seen it, where a high school history teacher is taken to court because she quoted the words of Jesus in class. It was a public high school. Um, J. Warner Wallace, the man you saw testifying on the stand there, he was actually a retired homicide detective who began his work, or began to transfer his work and his methodology to the Gospels and how he examined eyewitness accounts from, often from people who have passed away in cases that are cold, have not been solved. And he took the same methods and the same ways and means that he tried to verify eyewitness accounts in cold cases and applied them to the text of scripture, primarily the gospel accounts, of which we're going through the gospel of Mark. How convenient. So as far as he's concerned, as far as many people are concerned who are apologists, and if you're not really aware of what a Christian apologist is or what apologetics is in general, at its most basic level, it is a means and a method to defend the Christian faith to rationally think through it, to try to find what I like to call in a short reason behind the rhyme. Like why exactly is it, do we believe these things? Can we think about them critically? And do they stand up to critical examination? So I think it's great that we actually start with something like this because we are going through the gospel of Mark of which we have four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going through specifically the gospel of Mark and Jesus is saying some pretty profound things here. And according to J. Warner Wallace, he believes, as many people do, that the life, the teachings, the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is some of the most well-attested history that we have on the planet, and that it is verifiably credible. So as we look at these words of Jesus here in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through, or verses 14 through 20, we can, I think, and I believe, be very confident in the fact that these are words that are true and words that are credible and verifiable. And you say, oh, well, that's just, you know, you're a Christian, and of course you're going to say that. Well, okay, even if I wasn't a Christian, and I was a thoughtful human being, like I know all of you are thoughtful human beings, right? And I were to examine Buddhism, or Hinduism, or atheism, or Gnosticism, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or Mormonism, and I'd line them all up against Christianity, guess which one stands up high and above all the rest? Christianity. You're like, wow, <laughs> that Bible stuff actually makes sense in comparison to all these others. It makes far more sense than all the rest. So even if I wasn't a Christian and I was a thoughtful person who tried to objectively approach the scenarios, I would find that, okay, hmm, if I line them all up and I, and I scrutinize them under the same lens of skepticism or critical examination, guess which one holds most water? The biblical worldview. So it's not just because I'm a believer myself. I do think, though, in our day and age, we face a golden opportunity that comes with costs, and that is the fact that we have information overload and instant accessibility, right? We have information at our fingertips everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. You can get lost in the sea of research very, very easily, right? You start researching a topic and you find yourself an hour and a half into research, and you're like, man, I'm still on my first point, because you can literally search ad infinitum. Right? You go to this link and that link, you look up that journal in the library and it has a link to this and it's just like, man, it's everywhere and I'm searching and searching and searching. And because we have so much information at our fingertips, it's instantly accessible and we can literally get lost in a sea of information. So I think there's two things that we really, really have to be careful to do if we want to kind of navigate those waters better, which would be one, narrow our scope. 
because there's so much information out there, you can literally get lost and drown in the sea of it, so to narrow your scope is important. Okay, I know I can look at 400 sources, but let me narrow that to 40. Let me narrow my scope to 40. The next question would be, how do I decide what I narrow them to? Well, you have to decide and go through some kind of a process that says these things are verifiably credible. Because you know as well as I do, in our age, in our day, a 12-year-old can make a very, very convincing blog post that looks very, very, very convincing and very professional, right? They can go to Wikipedia, they can build a website on almost anything they want, and you're like, wow, this looks really professional and really credible. I think it's, this is true stuff. But it might just look really, really, really nice and look very professional. So two things, two challenges I think that we have in this wonderful, beautiful experience that we have as far as having access to so many things. Can you narrow your scope? Yeah, I have 400 things I can look at, but let me narrow it to 40. And of those 40 that I narrow it to, how can I know and how can I find out, yes, this is credible. This is verifiably credible, and this is something that I can believe and stand on is true. These are great opportunities for us and things we need to look out for. Our primary text for today is Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. So we're narrowing our scope to the gospel of Mark, and we already have discussed that it's verifiably credible. And our primary text for today, again, is Mark 1, 14 through 20, and it reads as such. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you, I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. Tonight we're going to go, the way we're going to go about this tonight is we're going to break this into two sections or two pieces or two passages. And we're going to look at verse 14 and 15, kind of phrase by phrase, that's section one. And then we're going to look at the second piece of the second section, which is going to be 16 through 20, and that's going to be our main ideas. So 14 and 15, we're going to take it piece by piece, and we're going to try to paint a picture with those pieces. And then 16 through 20, we're going to ask a question. Do you want to hang that picture on your wall? Okay, so we're going to look at 14 and 15, paint a picture of all these, we're going to go phrase by phrase, and then verse 16 through 20, we're going to look at the main ideas. <clears throat> so, I have this bag up here, has some chocolate and some Mentos, the fresh maker, all right? I'm going to ask you some questions throughout our time together tonight. So, who can tell me the name of the river Jesus was baptized in? Sorry, sorry, hand right here, all the way back, after, after you, brother. Young lady, back in the back, but I'll give it to you, both, both of you. But you, you said it, what is it? Jordan River, okay, so I'll, I'll hit you both. My man right here, and don't sue me if this hits somebody like an eye or something. That's a pretty good, thanks bro, that's a pretty good catch. All right, what did the Holy Spirit do to Jesus after he was baptized? Bam, right here. Did what? After he was baptized, that was the baptism. That's really good though, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a snicker for effort. But after, after he was baptized, what did he do? Boom. Drove him into the wilderness. You get a Reese's peanut butter cup. What's up? And last but not least, what did John the Baptist eat primarily? Right, right here. Sorry. Locusts and, Locust and wild honey. Nice. Kit Kat for you. Again, please don't, don't you know, Title IX is a real deal. 
okay? So, <laughs> so you know, you gotta be careful. All right. So pay attention because I'll be asking questions throughout, throughout our time together. So let's look at the first phrase. The first phrase is, the first phrase we have, we come up with is this idea of now after John was arrested. Now after John was arrested. And as I was going through this, I thought, you know, that's, I can just skip over that. But I think it gives us an idea about the character of the book of Mark in general. Because he says, now after John was arrested, then he talks a lot about Jesus. You will see in the book of Mark the word immediately used a ton, and even in chapter 1, 9 to 11 times based on what translation you, lose, you use. So it's like immediately, immediately, immediately. Jesus does something, immediately something happens. Something happens, immediately Jesus does something. So you see this idea of Mark kind of pressing the pace. Immediately Jesus does something, people respond. People do something, Jesus responds. And you'll see and used as an and this person, or and this thing happens. So and is almost used as an introductory word, so it's always compelling the reader to move forward. So Mark, or John Mark, isn't trying to necessarily go fast, but he's trying to pace us through and say, you know what, this is about Jesus the Messiah, and I'm constantly going to get you to a place of immediately. Immediately this happened, and this happened. And Jesus did this and this happened. So you'll see that a lot. And you do, it doesn't de-emphasize the fact that John the Baptist was arrested. It simply says, what Jesus is now doing is very important. So he says, now after John was arrested, Jesus does these things. So you would think it's like, wow, you're kind of de-emphasizing John the Baptist. But he's not de-emphasizing John the Baptist. He's emphasizing what Jesus is getting ready to do. Nice little note for those of us who might be a little more nerdy in our pursuit. In chapter 6, verses 17 through 29, Mark explains why John the Baptist was arrested. Just a nice little note there. Next phrase, Jesus came into Galilee. Okay, so what's that mean? Anybody? You know what I'm saying? Like, Jesus came into Galilee. Don't be shy. He went into Galilee. Man, that, that was, man, that was a tough one, wasn't it? Okay, let's try that again. Oh, oh watch out. What's up, Zach? Oh, it's right behind you. Sorry, bro. Sometimes it's nice to have an easy question every now and then, right? It'd be nice to have some of those in class. Like, hey, what does it mean? Jesus went to Galilee. He went to Galilee, right? Okay. So he went to Galilee. All right. Proclaiming. So proclaiming is a different, this is a term that we can break down, and the idea is that Jesus was a herald. That's not something we hear in our culture very often, the idea of a herald, but the word that I think most closely relates to our time and our day is the idea of an ambassador, okay? That Jesus was representative of God the Father. We've had some pretty tumultuous times in our country the last, say, three to four years. A lot of racial tension. A lot of things kind of dug up from the past, you know? A lot of ugh, not so nice things. Nikki R. Haley is our current U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Those of you who follow politics probably know her. She looks you know, strong-looking white lady. Like, she has a strong demeanor. She looks very respectful, dark hair, dark eyes. She's like, look, I represent the U.S. You may have seen some articles or seen some pictures. Well, she's the U.S. representative or the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Now, she can speak vigorously. She can recommend policy. She can be strong and firm in her demeanor with other UN ambassadors. She can promote US interests around the world through the UN, but she doesn't have the authority to enact movement. 
Like she can't say, if you don't do this, we're going to bring missiles to your shore. Like she doesn't have that kind of authority, right? But she can sit down and address, like look you in, if you don't do X, Y, Z, or if North Korea doesn't do X, Y, Z, or if Russia does X, Y, Z, this is where the United States stands. She can make very bold claims, but she doesn't have the authority to act. She has a mission, and she represents the interests of the U.S. to the U.N., but she cannot necessarily make action take place. If you don't remember her, she is the former governor of South Carolina. Most of us probably remember, I think anyway, the AME murders in South Carolina. Nine people died, right? Shot, killed, murdered. Remember that, right? She was the governor of South Carolina during that time. And she is most known for, most recognizable for her leadership during that time and the Confederate flags being taken down from the state house grounds after that took place. And if you've been paying attention to what's going on in our country at all, we know that we are still kind of going through that, right? I mean, people are fighting and dying and saying, hey, Confederate this and Confederate that and statues and people are fighting and bickering. It's on the news. People running over people, hitting people, flamethrowers out of hairspray bottles, like crazy stuff. She was the governor of South Carolina during that time, during the time of the AME murders. So she has a lot of experience and she's done a lot of things and she's our current ambassador, but again, she doesn't have the authority. She has a mission, but she doesn't have the authority. Jesus here, proclaiming indicates that he has a mission and he has the authority to act. So unlike our wonderful US representative to the, or ambassador to the UN and Miss Haley, Jesus came and said, I'm proclaiming this new, I'm proclaiming, and not only am I proclaiming, not only am I representing, not only am I an ambassador, but I have the authority to act on what I say. Big difference. Big difference. Question. Does anybody know what AME actually stands for as far as a church? A-M-E. Ooh, crickets? Anybody upstairs? Don't look on your phone. I see you up there holding your phone. Don't look on your phone. AME, African Methodist Episcopal. All right? So, well, you know, now you, now you might remember. Okay, what was the name of the perpetrator in the murders? This one is a Mentos. Who? Who? Ah, Mr. Roof. Who was it? Mr. Orange. The Fresh Maker. Share it with your teammates, bro. All right. So, Dylan Roof. We will continue. This is a longer phrase, right? The gospel, the good news of God, and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what we have here is Jesus proclaiming that there's this good news of the gospel. He's proclaiming this good news of the gospel, and he's saying the time is at hand, that this kingdom is inaugurating, is starting. And basically, in general, what he's saying is the promises that God made to Abraham way back when, he's saying, hey, what? Guess what? This, started, start, this is starting up again. I promised him land. I promised him that he would have a seed that would be bigger and innumerable than the stars at at night and the sand on the seashores. And I promised him that I would be his God or their God and they would be my people. So he's saying, hey, this thing that was promised to Abraham, this covenant that I've been watching all these hundreds of years, hey, the final peace is here now and is starting with my son, Jesus Christ. 
and that is at hand, is being fulfilled, a place for the Israelites to call their own, a place for the Jews to call their own, a population that would be innumerable, and God would be with them. And that time is starting now. It is at hand. God's kingdom is being established. The first steps are taken. The difficulty here is more than likely the Jewish people felt like when this kingdom is coming and being established, that they would have a kind of a preferred status or preferred seat in that kingdom. So in a nutshell, the hearers that Jesus is talking to there in Galilee, the people he's talking to are like, oh, this is, this is great news because now we're going to occupy a place of status that is higher than what we've been occupying. So they were expecting something, right? The expectation of God's kingdom was coming at some point and that they being under Roman oppression and Roman persecution, this is good news that God's good news, the good news of God, the good news of the kingdom is here and is coming and is starting now. Now, they were expecting a deliverer from the Romans, someone, savior of their souls, and also a king to sit on the throne of Israel. Most likely, in the majority opinion, is that they were expecting more of a temporal or an earthly deliverer, right? King now in the time of the kingdoms of the earth, and that their status would be exalted, the Romans would be vanquished, and they would live in a preferred kind of status, geopolitical status or whatnot. The difficulty is, though, that by and large, most of them were that were expecting a Messiah, and they were expecting this figure to come and to be a deliverer, and to solve this geopolitical dysfunction, this moral decay, it was quite limited to, again, kind of the earthly sphere. But the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed has a much broader aspect to it, and it's far more comprehensive. Jesus' proclamation begins then and now with the deliverance of each human heart from the power of sin. Every single one of us. It begins there. It says, you know what? I'm proclaiming this good news of the gospel, and it starts with you being delivered from the power of sin that ultimately ends in death and permanent separation from God the Father in what Jesus calls a place of burning, teeth, gnashing, pain, and dysfunction for eternity. He says, it starts, the kingdom starts with deliverance from that Jesus is enthroned on our hearts. He becomes the king and the Lord of our lives. And through that relationship with him, the geopolitical dysfunction, the social injustices, and the moral decay of the world is slowly redeemed and brought back into right relationship with God as the individual person is brought into relationship with God. Jesus proclaims boldly to the people of that day that the kingdom is now at hand. They had the idea that the kingdom was much more temporal, much more today, much more our nation, not so much the individual person. But we can understand in hindsight, and even you know, through their time after Jesus' resurrection, they understood that it's more comprehensive. That it is the human soul plus all these other things. And that ultimately a new heaven and a new earth when eternity comes to our reality. This is the thing that he is proclaiming. This kingdom is at hand, a kingdom that is starting right now where each individual person has the opportunity to come to the knowledge of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be delivered from a sinful nature that separates us from God. And through that relationship, the world around us begins to change based on your saltiness, based on the light that shines in you, based on your now desire to honor God in your life and to bring about change in society, in your family, in your relationships, on your sports teams, in choir, in theater. Like, okay, I'm, 
this thing called Jesus is now on the throne of my heart. This person called Jesus is on the throne of my heart. And now I am beginning to be his representative in the earth. And through that relationship, these things begin to change and reflect more about Jesus than me. That's the kingdom that he is inaugurating there and that is continuing today. Now the ticket to be in this kingdom, to be a citizen of this kingdom, to be a part of this kingdom is to repent and to believe. Now repentance is pretty straightforward. I'm going this way, it is wrong, unhealthy, sinful, bad, turn away. I'm gonna go this way. This is the believe part. I believe in Jesus, I believe the Bible is true, I believe I need a savior, I believe I need forgiveness for sins, I'm gonna follow Christ. So I repent from my wicked ways, I'm walking this way, I'm walking in the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, I'm walking in these things that are contrary to who God is and contrary to a healthy human being, and I'm going to turn from them in repentance, I'm going to turn to God. Because now I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. I believe that the Bible is true. I don't really know why. I think it's a weird book, but for some reason I'm just compelled to believe it's true. It's this thing called faith. And now I believe and I'm walking towards God. I'm following Jesus. He is now my king. He is now my Lord. There's a big difference. Jesus said that is what's necessary to be a member of his kingdom. To repent and to believe. Questions. What are the two challenges that we must face in our day due to the information overload and instant accessibility? Mentos. Mr. Ben. Narrow your scope. And do you have both of them? Oh! But you get a race. You get, you get a Reese's. Awesome. So one of them is narrow our scope. What was the other one? Yes, ma'am. Credibility. Verifiable credibility. Yes, yes, yes. And I don't know if the Snickers is going to make it that far. That wasn't bad. No, that's my, my, you know, what's up? I still got good form. Okay. So, who was the father of the people of Israel? The first Jew. Oh, okay. What's up? Father Abraham. Is this your second one, huh? Had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. Nice. Okay. So, what expectation did the Jewish people have? They had a hope. Somebody probably knows this. Taylor? Oh, my bad. Brother? The glass, yeah. Uh, they were a warrior. Yes, they're a warrior. Now, Mr. Phil Taylor was a graduate from here, very smart, very keen and visual. I'm going to put him on the spot. What kind of hope did the people of Israel have? The technical term. Starts with an M. Oops. Oh, dang. Yeah. Oh. Uh-huh. Um, and they were going to, I don't know, the, the Jews were going to be exalted over the Romans. They were going to conquer the Romans. Uh-huh. I'm going to give it to him because I did put him on the spot. What I was looking for is the idea of a messianic hope. He's like, oh, duh, right? They had a messianic hope. This savior was going to come. This figure was going to come that was going to fulfill prophecies and have a hope there. So now we're on to the second part, and I'm going to hurry. We're into the second part of this piece, right? This passage, we're going to look at main ideas. We're not going to go phrase by phrase. We're going to go main ideas. And we're going to ask ourselves, do we want to hang this picture on our wall? Okay? 
So the second half is, passing us along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew and the brother of Simon casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James and John, the son of Zebedee and his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Main idea number one, Jesus makes the first move. Jesus makes the first move. He was walking around the Sea of Galilee. He said, hey, I see you. Follow me. I see you. Follow me. Hey, you fisherman guy, follow me. He makes the first move. Luke 19.10, I believe it is. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek. So he is seeking. Guess what? For some of you today, right now, he is seeking you. Right now. He's seeking you. Second big idea. Jesus meets us where we're at. They're fishing in some boats. Jesus is like, okay, I'm walking around the lake at Sea of Galilee, and uh, they're, in some, they're in some boats, and I'm going to call them right now while they're fishing. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus, right? You don't have to get off the alcohol. You don't have to get off the porn. You don't have to stop sleeping with your boyfriend. You don't have to start cussing everybody up and down. You don't have to stop gossiping. You don't have to stop cheating on tests. You don't have to stop any of that. Now, stopping that stuff is good and healthy, right? That stuff is bad for our health. Jesus says, come to me. Matthew 18, Matthew 11, 8. 28 and 29 says, come to me, all you who are labor and all of you who are heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? Heavy laden with the dysfunction in your life. He says, right now, however you are, whatever is going on, come to me. He doesn't say clean up first and then come. He says, come to me just as you are. They're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. He says, hey, what? You're fishing, your hands are dirty, you're smelling, you need a shower. Come to me. He didn't say go clean up first. He didn't say go to church first. He didn't say go to the synagogue first. He didn't go say have a discussion with your parents first and sit around the dinner table and have a really nice dinner. He said, right now, where you're at, how you are, come to me. That's what he says. Third big idea. Jesus leads us, to, leads us into an abundant and everlasting life. He gets these fishermen and he says, I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus takes the raw material of our lives and all of a sudden he comes into it and says, guess what? I'm going to fashion you into this amazing, more amazing than you ever thought you could be. You're going to experience life in a whole new way. I'm going to work in you to bring about my kingdom. You're going to play a part in what I'm doing in the earth today and what's going to have results in eternity. You're going to be a part of what I'm doing. You're going to experience life in a meaningful way, in a pleasurable way, in a way that brings you joy, in a way that brings glory to God's name. He says, you know what? I'm going to take these fishermen. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Matter of fact, you're going to work for me and you're going to turn the whole world on its head because you followed me. That's what Jesus does to us. That's what he does. He uses us to fulfill his purposes. He invites us into that transaction. So the question, as the band comes up, the question I want you to ask, and the question that we're going to ask, do you want to hang this on your wall? Do you want to hang this picture on your wall? We painted a picture in the first half. We talked about some things in the second half here. Do you want to repent and believe? Will you today choose to follow Jesus? To acknowledge Jesus as the living God. Someone in here today, the Holy Spirit is messing with you. And you're like, oh, this is happening again. Dang it. He's knocking on your door and he's saying, choose this day who you will serve. Will you put Jesus Christ on the throne of your heart today? 
Will you confess your sins and ask for forgiveness? Will you believe that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most historically attestable, verifiable, incredible acts that we have in human history? And say, Lord, I will lay myself down, repent from my wicked ways, and turn to you. I will acknowledge you as my Lord, my Savior, my Father, and my friend. Is this a picture you want to hang on your wall tonight? The band is going to give us a couple songs. And as they do, please consider what we've heard tonight.